A few months ago, a stingray got pregnant. Except there were no male stingrays in the tank, which raised a question. Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? Who's the daddy? But scientists think... There is no daddy. And it's not just this stingray. All kinds of animals are getting pregnant all on their own. This week on Unexplainable, what exactly is going on here? Follow Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. Hey folks, this episode contains graphic descriptions of violence and sexual assault, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. Seriously, this is one of the most disturbing stories I came across in my time at SDNY, but it's an important story that sheds light on what we do and why. Kathleen Mangan had been married for less than a year when her husband stopped coming to bed. This is a reenactment of what she said. He always said that because he got home late, he couldn't go right to sleep. So he would play video games, watch TV, go on the internet for a couple of hours. And then, after I got pregnant, it kept getting worse. He started staying up really late, or not coming to bed at all. He would stay up until 3, 4, 5 in the morning, or just not come to sleep in our bed. He also just didn't seem interested in her. He didn't help take care of their infant daughter. He just wasn't very present. Their marriage was in trouble, and Kathleen was getting suspicious. What was he doing online all night? So one day she decided to do a little snooping. She installed spyware on the computer they shared, and as usual, her husband spent most of that night on the internet. The next morning, while he was sleeping, Kathleen opened the laptop and took a look. It turned out he wasn't having an affair. It was much, much worse than that. I grabbed my cell phone and the baby, and I put her in the stroller, and I ran across the street to a park. I called my parents. Kathleen's father was an ex-cop, and when he heard about what she'd seen on the laptop, he told her to go to the airport. He'd have a ticket waiting there for her. I grabbed what I could. I was going to fly home with the baby, and I remember just packing as fast as I could, and I had the phone in my hand just in case I needed to dial 911. She also packed the laptop, which was full of the most disturbing things she'd ever seen. She may not have known it then, but she was leaving her husband for good. I'm Preet Bharara, and this is Doing Justice. I'm the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, SDNY. Basically, I was the head federal prosecutor in Manhattan. People who work in law enforcement learn to have a special sense of impending danger, like a little voice in our heads that goes, God forbid. God forbid somebody should be planning a terrible crime and no one steps in to stop him. God forbid. There have been a lot of those moments in my career, but the one I'm going to tell you about today, well, it was one of the worst. Special Agent Anthony Photo is in the FBI. He took my call from his backyard, somewhere in southern Louisiana. Back when Photo lived in New York, he was part of an FBI violent crime fugitive task force. And we work 
Primarily armed bank robberies, kidnappings, murder for hires, fugitives, action movie stuff, right? Sometimes you still think to yourself, like, I can't believe I'm doing this right now. <laughs> In early September 2012, Photo was coming off an unusually busy summer. That June, we had been out of the country for most of the month on a case. In July, they took down an armored car robbery crew. So that's a big deal. And we're exhausted. We roll right into August. In August, it was a home invasion crew. So by the time that's over with, we are, I mean, we're, we're burnt, right? We're done. De- definitely not looking at jumping into some huge case. Maybe I can kind of take it easy for a little bit. No luck. A new case landed on Photo's desk. A case that turned out to be very different from the kind of action movie stuff he was used to. A case that would change the way Photo understood the world and what other people were capable of. It started when the FBI got a tip from Kathleen Mangan about her husband. His name was Gilberto Valley. Photo's supervisor handed him a slim document with a write-up of the call and screenshots of some emails. Remember it like yesterday. So to set the scene for you, it was late one afternoon. I was about to get out of there and I got this thing. And um, I remember reading it and I I didn't even believe it was real. I I didn't even know how to take it. I opened the computer and there were all of these websites and there were pictures of feet, feet that were not attached to bodies. I didn't even know what to do with it, to be honest with you, at the beginning. There was a woman just dangling I'm reading them, and it is just so crazy. It's the craziest stuff I've ever seen or read. I'm reading that, you know, this this lady had called in, and she had seen some uh, emails or uh, chats on the computer, and her husband's talking about killing and eating people. Cannibalism. What Photo was looking at was much more like a plot from a horror movie than an action film. There's a part of you that's saying... Is this too crazy to be true? Um, No one could really be planning on doing that, right? Especially the the cannibalism aspect. At the time, Photo didn't have much of a history working crimes on the internet. And this stuff was so bizarre and over the top, he had a hard time believing it was real. But... Another part of you is telling you, you know, if there's any part of this that is true, we've got to get a move on it, right? We've got to figure this out. I had all of these screenshots, and in them were names of of women. Names of real women. Andrea was going to be burned alive, and Kim were supposed to be raped. And then Alyssa. That's what Kathleen saw the morning she opened the laptop. I was staring at pictures of me, pictures of my friends, pictures of people we knew. Her husband's excruciating, detailed plans for what he would do to their friends and to Kathleen herself. She was afraid that her husband was going to kill her. Even if the photos and online chats were part of a grotesque fantasy, the women they were talking about were real, and that was alarming, to say the least. Photo had to investigate. That night, he started by calling the women whose names were in the screenshots, calling to make sure they were okay. It's a pretty standard thing for law enforcement. But in this case, it was a little trickier than usual. You know, contacting anybody for anything, forget this uh, situation here, but you're just contacting anybody. People are going to freak out, right? 
So you're always like trying to lessen that blow of I'm with the FBI and I, I need to talk to you, right? So, you know, most went as you might imagine. People just in an absolute panic, right? I mean, you call somebody and tell them that there's someone out there, a number of people out there, you know, at, at the very least at this point, talking about kidnapping and murdering and torturing them. That's a tough pill to swallow, right? Everyone he reached out to that night was safe, at least for the moment. Next, he called Valley's wife, the woman who called in the tip, Kathleen Mangan. She's very smart and very helpful for us. Um, so she, she kind of laid it all out, right? She told Photo the whole story, how she'd met Gilberto Valley on a dating site a few years earlier, when she was still new to New York City. Gil seemed like a nice guy, a gentleman, who opened doors and pulled out chairs for her. They moved in together, had a baby, got married. And there was something else, something that really got Photo's attention, that raised the stakes and made the whole thing, the chats and photos, seem so much more threatening. Valley wasn't just an ordinary guy looking at scary porn. He was an active duty officer in the NYPD, a beat cop in Upper Manhattan, patrolling on the late shift, 3 p.m. till midnight. He wore a blue uniform, carried handcuffs, and a gun. He's trained to some degree, at least, and he's out there with the public, right? If he were really planning to do the things he talked about online, there is no telling how dangerous he could be. So Agent Photo brought the case to my office, SDNY. Prosecutor Hadassah Waxman was the first person to look at it. And I was sitting in my office, you know, investigating my gang murders. Um, and an FBI agent who I worked a lot with, Anthony Soto, came into my office and dropped a stack of papers on my desk. I remember, you know, thinking, how am I going to explain this thing? And he said, you will never believe what I have here. Take a look at this and then we'll talk. And I started leafing through the papers and I saw these chats involving a man named Gilberto Valley, um, chats with, uh, unidentified men, men we didn't, we didn't know who they were at the time, about kidnapping, murdering, and cannibalizing women. And these weren't any women. These were real women. They weren't fantasy women. They were real women, including his wife, including uh, a woman he went to college with, including a young high school student, I think a junior or senior in high school. Do you remember how you felt when you read those? You know, those, I, uh... yeah, I do. I mean, it was like, it was I literally felt sick to my stomach because the, the chats, they were not only, they were so misogynistic, um, they were vile, they were vulgar, they were descriptive. They talked about drugging a woman, chloroforming her, um, putting her into a car, driving her upstate or driving her to a secluded location. And once she was there, they talked about raping her in the most extreme and brutal way, tying her up tying her to a tree, hanging her by her legs, and raping her. They talked about other types of torture, including burning her alive, for example. Um, then they, they talked about murdering her and then ultimately cannibalizing her. So I'm finding this a little hard to talk about <laughs> right now. It's just bringing back all these memories. When we get a new case at SDNY, we have to decide whether or not to pursue it. We ask ourselves, 
Is it likely that a crime was committed? And will we be able to find evidence of that crime? In this case, we asked ourselves, what if we don't investigate? And then somebody gets hurt. Could we prevent a crime? We decided that because he's a New York City police officer and because he was talking about women who actually existed, women who he had access to, we had no choice but to pursue an investigation. Not only did we need to investigate, we had to do it fast. If Valley was serious, we'd have to arrest him, take his badge, and get him off the streets as soon as possible. Teams at the FBI and SDNY spent the next few weeks gathering mountains of evidence. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of emails. Tens of thousands of images all have to be reviewed. We looked at his Google searches, we looked at his internet activity, and saw that he had been searching um, for recipes for chloroform, which is a sleeping agent. We saw he had been searching for information about mass murderers um, and how to avoid getting caught. And as you go down that rabbit trail, it just kept getting worse. Valley was part of several online sexual fetish communities. The most extreme of them was called Dark Fetish Network, where people shared very violent fantasies. So violent, in fact, that there was a disclaimer on the website. Chats may be monitored by law enforcement. And then what we found so scary about him is he actually went off of the Dark Fetish Network because he knew that that was being monitored. And he began to engage in conversations through his private email accounts. Valley knew the chats might be monitored. So he moved his conversations to private email accounts. And that's where things shifted. On his Dark Fetish Network profile, Valley wrote that he was just fantasizing. But when he started using private email, he wrote that he was serious. It looked like Valley was covering his tracks. But who was he hiding from? Not from his wife. She could access his email just as easily as she could access his Dark Fetish Network account. No, Valley was hiding from the people he knew were monitoring the website. Law enforcement. So we kept digging. The FBI already had the laptop, the one Kathleen grabbed when she left home. But she told Photo there was a second computer still in the apartment. So the FBI waited until Valley was out at work. Then, with Kathleen's permission, they went into the apartment and copied the hard drive. Okay, so imagine now you're opening up your My Documents, right? And you got all the little folders in your My Documents. Well, he, when you open up his, he has folders for 89 women with their first and last names. And when you click on any of those folders, he has anywhere, I think, from 14 to 40 pictures of them in those folders. Valley had a filing system for dozens and dozens of women. Women who were his targets. And those photos? Valley didn't just keep them for himself. He shared them with the other men while talking about rape and murder. So put yourself in that perspective, right? Somebody on their computer has photos of you and is uploading photos to a website where people are looking at you and talking about how they would do all of these things to you. Valley was so organized, so deliberate and systematic about it, it looked even more like a plan. In chats and emails, he wrote in detail about the equipment he would need to kidnap and eventually roast a woman. He had plans for what he'd wear, 
how he would dispose of the evidence. He even prepared a two-page document that he called Abducting and Cooking Kimberly, a blueprint. Kimberly was a friend of his from college. The more we read, the less this looked like some kind of shared violent fantasy. These guys, they were escalating. The conversations to us seemed to be escalating. They seemed to be more detailed. We started investigating some of Valley's internet friends and the men they were chatting with, including an ex-cop in New Jersey and a former high school librarian in New York. But Valley stood out. He searched for places upstate where he was going to bring a woman. We were incredibly concerned about that. And that was different from all the other men. Also, the nature of the conversations was different. Um, the other men uh, talked in terms of stories, quote, fantasies. Gilberto Valley never did that. And in with respect to a couple of the men with whom he was chatting, um, at some point they said to him, look, if you're not for real, we're going to stop this because we don't want to waste our time. And Valley said on numerous occasions, I am for real. I want to do this. I have the ability to do this. And I'm going to get this done. When people in law enforcement see something like that, that repeated confirmation of intent, that's when the little God forbid voice starts screaming. God forbid this NYPD officer should be planning to kidnap and rape women. God forbid he should do that. God forbid this guy should kill and eat someone when we could prevent it. I remember driving into work one day and I'm thinking and I'm like, man, what else? And I'm like, I wonder if he used his access to criminal database checks to look some of these women up. The NYPD has a has a database that has personal information about everybody. That database is only allowed to be used by police officers in connection with their work as a police officer. It would be illegal for Valley to use the database for anything other than police work. But theoretically, he could use it to find just about anybody. Agent Photo had already notified the Internal Affairs Bureau at the NYPD that Valley was under investigation, and they were helping us monitor him while he was working. Now Photo asked them to check his database search history. And lo and behold, he used his access to find, look up addresses for some of these women that he was talking about. So now... Man, we're past the, the Googling chloroform, right? So Valley had a plan, a hit list. He knew where to find some of his would-be victims. And then he started scouting. One of his targets was a former co-worker of his wife's, a teacher. And when we interviewed her, he, she told us that he showed up at her school. He showed up at her school in his cop uniform, in his cop car, and just stood there staring at her which he wouldn't have known where she worked unless he took some sort of illegitimate law enforcement action on the law enforcement database to figure out where she worked. The fact that he left his precinct, went to her school, surveilled her, um, was very, very concerning to us. And there were others. The girl who was still in high school, he stalked her, too. He found out that she played softball, um, and he went and he watched her play softball. Again, this was during his hours when he was supposed to be on duty. Um, he had no business being there. He had no police duty that would require him to be there, and he just would sit and watch her play softball. 
And our view that that was a real step taken in the real world that demonstrated by overwhelming evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that he was serious, totally serious about engaging in a kidnapping. In late October 2012, we started to talk about arresting Valley. We wanted to do a sting operation, get all the evidence on him that we could by planting an agent in the dark fetish network. An undercover FBI agent who would act, who would pretend to be somebody who was interested in kidnapping and cannibalizing women. The operation would be delicate, time-consuming, but eventually it would provide enough evidence for a really strong case. The agent would start chatting with Valley, gain his trust, and together they would plan a kidnapping, buy the gear they'd need to do it. Maybe we'd even use another undercover agent as bait to really make it clear that this was no fantasy. An undercover agent would not lure him into doing something that he wouldn't have otherwise done, but engage in similar conversations that he was already having with other men who he met on the Dark Fetish Network. That was the ideal plan. But it was starting to look like Valley had new plans of his own. The NYPD, which was still keeping an eye on him for us, reported that he had just requested 10 days off and requested them on short notice. And this scared us for a number of reasons. First, um, in our experience working with cops, vacations are planned well in advance. This vacation was not planned well in advance. And we were also very concerned because at that time, his wife, Kathleen, and their daughter had left him and he was living alone in his house. So we thought with a 10-day period where he's not going to be monitored by the police department, we had to make a decision. Over the next couple of days, we spent hours meeting deliberating on when to arrest Valley, whether we had enough evidence of a crime, whether we could afford to wait. He drives around in a cop car. He has a badge. He has handcuffs. He has a gun. How easy would it be for him to lure a young woman while he's on duty into his cop car? As far as we could tell, he had not yet kidnapped anybody. But Valley had taken concrete steps to carry out his plans, agreeing to do something illegal and then taking real steps to do it, that's a crime in itself, called conspiracy. In the end, that God-forbid voice won out. We made the call to arrest Valley for conspiracy to kidnap. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there is no way that, that Israel should be able to participate Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. This week on The Gray Area. Professor Diana Posulka and I tackle one of life's biggest questions. Are we alone in the universe? What would it take for you to step off the agnostic ledge and say, yeah, aliens are real? Is it a spacecraft landing on the White House lawn? 
Well, something that was anomalous in 1952 did fly over the White House, and that's one of those cases that is still weird. (laughs) That's This Week on the Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. When Photo and his team went to Valley's apartment, Valley didn't put up any resistance. Instead, he made a number of what we would call admissions. He told Photo that he first started having violent fantasies as a teenager, and he admitted to using sexual fetish websites and social networks. But he also said he did not plan on acting on his violent urges. He wasn't serious about it, but other people were. And he was, would, would be willing to help me try to figure out who was being serious about it and who wasn't. Valley knew he was in trouble and was already working on ways to get out of it. As a police officer, he knew that the easiest way to reduce any kind of punishment would be to cooperate with law enforcement. In this case, offering to spy on his internet buddies. That, in and of itself, is telling me that you are acknowledging that what is going on in this chat room is not all fantasy. And you, as a police officer, are still engaging in that activity. The minute Valley's arrest went public, news outlets went crazy. You're not going to believe this, but the FBI in New York just tweeted, FBI arrests police officer yesterday in conspiracy to kidnap, cook, and eat women. As the case unfolded, reporters fixated on the grisly details, quoting passages straight from Valley's chats and emails. My oven is big enough to fit one of these girls if I fold their legs and the... I'd like feet soup as an appetizer, hunk of thigh meat as entree. The story was gruesome enough on its own, but the tabloids still managed to sensationalize it. They gave Valley a buzzy nickname. Cannibal Cop. The Cannibal Cop. And printed punny headlines like, Cannibal has a bone to pick, and the internet is a feast for fetishes. The media got into the mix on the question of fantasy versus reality. At what point does a fantasy become something more? At what point should the government step in? This wasn't just tabloid fodder. It was discussed in detail on NPR. You obviously don't want to create a situation where someone can say, just kidding, after fantasizing about an illegal act and immunize themselves. But there's something uh, unique to fetishes that do involve pure fantasy, and that's why it's so tough. Something unique to fetishes. Valley planned to kill women he knew, women he was attracted to, and that made a lot of people think that his plans were just fantasy, disgusting fantasies, but harmless nonetheless. But just imagine if Valley and his internet friends had been chatting about kidnapping, dismembering, murdering, and eating other men, maybe even powerful men, men in the public eye, Would the discussion around the case have been different? Hadassah Waxman thinks it would have been. It is accepted, I think, for men in some ways to objectify and fantasize and talk about women in rude terms, even in brutal terms, right? I mean, the president of the United States calls it locker room talk, and he was elected even after the entire country knew that he did that. So it is part of our culture, and it is accepted in some way. It is not accepted, um, and we don't expect men to fantasize about murdering other men, especially powerful men. And I think that the culture would frankly be more protective, right? Because it's not 
something that men fantasize about in their minds. In the months between the arrest and the trial, Hadassah and her trial partner, Randall Jackson, had to choose which evidence to show the jury. They poured through hundreds of thousands of emails, chats, and photos. You know, and then you go home at 10 or 11 o'clock at night and are exhausted emotionally, physically from the day. You get a few hours of sleep and then go back and do the same thing. And this went on for months and months and months. And what I found sort of hard to bear was the discussion about violence against women as though it were nothing. They were totally objectified. I mean, they were like pieces of meat. And that to me was, I found that really sort of emotionally hard when I was investigating the case. And, you know, I'm the mother of two teenage daughters. And the thought of anyone talking about my daughters in that way, was it was really hard to bear. The case was also difficult from a legal standpoint. The defense argued that Valley never kidnapped anyone, didn't have any intention of kidnapping anyone. In her opening statement, his lawyer, Julia Gatto, said that everything Valley talked about online was just scary make-believe. He was guilty of nothing but thinking unsavory thoughts. There's been no dispute. Gil Valley participates in what is a very vibrant subculture on the internet of fantasy role-playing. But he never intended any acts of violence. He didn't commit any acts of violence. Um, All he's done is thought some very bizarre thoughts and shared them with others who share the same fetishes as him on the internet. A big question in this case was about the idea of thought crimes. Whether we were prosecuting a man for his thoughts rather than a conspiracy to commit real crimes. Of course, we don't want to prosecute people for their thoughts. The freedom to think and say and write what we want is enshrined in our First Amendment. It is one of our most important rights. What Valley was charged with, conspiracy to kidnap, was not a thought crime. Conspiracy, the legal meaning, requires two things. One, that people have agreed to commit a crime together. And two, that at least one of them has done an overt act to further that crime. In other words, we had to prove, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Valley and his internet buddies not only agreed to commit kidnapping, but that he had also taken real-world steps to do it. For the first part, we had thousands of chats and emails where Valley and his friends laid out clear, detailed plans agreeing to commit crimes. There was more discussion about, are you sure you're not a fantasist? No, I'm not a fantasist. Okay, let's keep talking. But in other chats, Valley said it was just a fantasy, that it wasn't real. And we knew the defense would point to that and say none of it was serious. When it came to proving the second element of the conspiracy, the overt acts part, that's where things got a little fuzzy. Valley illegally used the police database to look up women's addresses. Was that an overt act? What about looking up a recipe for chloroform and sharing it with his friends? Or searching online for secluded cabins where no one could hear a victim's screams? We would have liked to have seen him go out to a store and buy the ingredients to make chloroform. Um, He had conversations about ropes um, and about knives. When we did a search warrant of the house, we didn't find ropes and we didn't find knives. The case was far from open and shut. To make things even trickier, by the time we got to trial, some of our most compelling evidence was suppressed by the court. For example, we couldn't include the fact that Valley had stalked his wife's former co-worker because it was deemed irrelevant to the charges. 
We also couldn't include the fact that Valley had stalked a teenage girl because the evidence came from GPS data from Valley's cell phone and the judge thought it wasn't accurate enough. A lot of Kathleen's testimony of Valley's suspicious behavior was also suppressed. One of the things she couldn't testify about was a suitcase. The suitcase that we believed Valley intended to stuff a woman into. She was sort of cleaning out their apartment and making room for the baby stuff to come in. And he had this, like, massive suitcase in storage that she got rid of because she said they never used it. And when he came home that night from work, he said, where's my suitcase? And she said, well, I threw it out. We have to make room for the baby. And he lost it. He lost his mind. He was so angry at her for throwing it out. And at the time, she was so confused. She thought, we never use this suitcase. We never travel. Like, it's a massive suitcase. Why would we ever need this, ever? And then later on, when she was made aware of the chat, she connected the dots. He planned to use it as part of his crime. When we tried to have Kathleen tell that story in front of the jury, the judge wouldn't allow it, because Valley had invoked something called marital privilege. That's the right not to have your spouse testify against you about things you said during the marriage. Even though there was a lot Kathleen couldn't talk about, she was still our key witness. After all, she was the one who was closest to Valley, the one who discovered his chats, and immediately believed he was serious about killing her. She was, frankly, a young, lovely, well-spoken woman who had literally been through hell. She came to New York, thought she fell in love, was planning on building a life with this man, had a child with this man, and she woke up one morning to see that he was a monster, that he was planning on doing horrific things to her and to other women that he knew and that she knew, her friends, in fact, one of her friends, in fact. She was totally beside herself with sadness and with fear and just wanted to do what's right for her daughter um, and wanted to protect her daughter. But I thought that she was very brave. When Kathleen took the stand, the courtroom was packed and Valley was there, sitting at the defense table. Kathleen testified about the relationship, the way Valley had changed, how he seemed to have lost interest in her after she got pregnant, and how he started to behave strangely. I started running because I thought maybe that would help him want me, if I were thinner, prettier. Maybe he would love me. And there were some bizarre things he did about that. He seemed very interested in my running route, and wanted to know where I was running, if it was uphill or down, if there was good lighting, if there were a lot of people around when I was running. He encouraged me to run at night. He encouraged her to run at night. He got details about the lighting and the number of people around her route. If you were planning to kidnap and torture your wife, these are the kinds of details you might be interested in. When it came time for the cross-examination, Valley's defense attorney tried to get Kathleen to talk about Valley's nice guy qualities and the good parts of their relationship. The lawyer asked about their dog, a bulldog named Dudley. Gil walked the dog, right? Yes, he did. Gil loved the dog, didn't he? I think so, Kathleen said. And after the baby came, Gil spent time with the baby, right, Miss Mangan? He would hold her maybe 20 minutes a day while he watched a show. And then, whenever his family was over, suddenly he was super dad. But other than that, no. Ms. Mangan, before you had the baby, you and Gil had a nice marriage, right? 
No, Kathleen said. Your wedding was nice, wasn't it? Yes, the wedding was nice. The marriage was not. Kathleen wasn't having any of it. But even if the defense attorney's cross-examination fell flat, she did make one argument that the judge found very compelling. Although Valley and his co-conspirators spent countless hours making very detailed plans, those plans never actually came to pass. For instance, one man offered Valley thousands of dollars to kidnap a woman and bring her to him, but the price kept changing. The money was never exchanged, and the kidnapping never happened. Several times, Valley and his friends made plans to kidnap a specific woman on a specific date. Then that date came and went. No kidnapping. But nobody ever said, Hey, what happened? I thought we were going to kidnap that woman on February 20th. Instead, the date got pushed back. And the same thing happened all over again. And again. And again. The trial went on for about two weeks. And on the last day of arguments, Hadassah and her trial partner perfectly summed up our position, the most important reason why we brought this case. Imagine, imagine if there were guys who were talking about blowing up the Brooklyn Bridge or driving a plane into a building. Would you want the FBI and would you want the U.S. Attorney's Office to sort of sit around and wait to see what happened? You can't do that. We are sworn to protect the public. That is our duty. That is why we exist, to protect the public. And if we were in a scenario where you have folks talking about committing a horrible act that could result in mass casualties, you would demand that the government take action. And that's exactly what we are doing here. Here's a guy who you can't let run around on the street with a gun. You, you have to incapacitate him because, God forbid, he actually does it. It's on us. It was time for the jury to deliberate and reach a verdict. The jury sent questions to the judge, asking him to explain certain points of law. We were worried that one juror might be a holdout and prevent a conviction. In federal court, the jury has to be unanimous. A day passed, then another, and another. The jury deliberated for about three and a half days, um, and ultimately they returned a verdict of guilty. Gilberto Valley was convicted of conspiracy to kidnap and illegally accessing the criminal database. A date for the sentencing hearing was set. Valley's crimes carried a possible sentence of life in prison. But there's all this other stuff that goes on behind the scenes of a trial. Before, during, and after a trial, lawyers file all sorts of motions, which are requests to the court. After a conviction, a defendant brings what we call a Rule 29 motion, which is a motion... Rule 29 is a standard motion for acquittal. It argues that the government didn't present enough evidence for a reasonable jury to find the defendant guilty. Basically, it asks the judge to look at the case again and cancel the jury's conviction. These motions happen all the time. Any good defense attorney files a Rule 29 motion after a conviction. It's like a Hail Mary and it almost never results in an overturned conviction. In my experience, it is so rare. I have never had any of my cases where the convictions were overturned on a Rule 29 motion or on any other ground doesn't happen because judges simply defer to the jury. The jury has heard the case. The jury has considered all the facts. It is the jury's duty. 12 people, 12 peers who are objectively chosen by both sides to consider the case. 
So the defense had filed this motion, but meanwhile, we had a sentencing date scheduled. And then rescheduled. It got moved. It got moved. It got moved. It kept getting moved. So we kept thinking the more time that passes, the less likely Judge Gardefee is to overturn our verdict. Because if he truly thinks the guy is innocent or he truly thinks the guy um, should not be in jail or that the government failed in its proof, he would let him out. But he's letting him sit there for 18 months. So we were pretty confident that um, the judge was going to going to let the verdict stand. But you were wrong. We were wrong. Um, I was on the two train going to work. And I got um, an email that um, showed me that a decision had come out, that Judge Gardefee had written his decision. And I couldn't open it on the train because I didn't have service. So I forwarded the email to a friend of mine. um, And I said, can you open this for me and tell me what it says? And he wrote me back and said, it's not good. Your verdict has been overturned. In the judge's view, the fantasy had simply not graduated. There was too much vague discussion, too little action, too much moving of the dates, too little distinction between reality and fantasy. So he ruled that no reasonable juror could have found Valley guilty of conspiracy. Despite very colorful talk, there was no giant oven. There was no pulley apparatus. We appealed the judge's decision, and we lost again. I felt like I let Kathleen down, and I feel like I let the other women down. It's not a good feeling to tell a victim that that the person that wants to do grave harm to them is not going to be in jail. It's going to be on the street. It's, It's very, like, that's the hardest thing, I think, is to sort of let down the victim. Gilberto Valley was released from prison, and although he'd been fired from the NYPD, he still kept busy. He got a couple of book deals, made some TV appearances. Kathleen stayed in Nevada and ended up in a long custody battle over their daughter. She won, eventually. As for Valley's internet friends, we managed to run a successful sting operation on one of them, Michael Van Heiss, along with two of his internet friends. An undercover FBI agent posed as a fetishist, befriended the men online, and together planned to kidnap another undercover agent who we dangled as bait. This time, the men showed up in person with sedatives, duct tape, tasers, even pliers and skewers. The case was tried before the same judge who heard Valley's case. The jury found them guilty, and the defendant's lawyers filed that same Rule 29 motion. But this time, because of the sting operation, the evidence was that much stronger. And the same judge upheld the jury's guilty verdict. Two of the men were sentenced to seven years in prison. The third, an ex-cop, got 10 years. But Hadassah and Agent Photo, the people who lived and breathed this case for almost two years of their lives, they say this experience changed them permanently. It changed the way they look at other people. The scariest part about it is the people that are involved in all this aren't necessarily your career criminals, right? There, in this particular beginning case, was a police officer, later another police officer, and a a librarian at a public school. And these are guys that live next to you. 
people that were supposed to trust and people who knew they were trusted in the community. Both Photo and Hadassah have kids. They say this case has affected how they parent. Hadassah worries about her teenage daughters in a way that she never had before. I think every parent worries that their children could potentially be harmed. But I think my worry is probably a little bit greater than most. You know, I mean, I've told my kids a million times, like, if you get into trouble, you know, you live in New York City. If, like, you're afraid, like, go to a police officer. Well, I know a police officer who you wouldn't want to go to if you were in trouble. I've thought a lot about the Valley case. And even though the judge decided to clear him, I believe we did the right thing. I think our charges were fair, and I would do it all over again. But while I don't agree with the judge, I also don't think his decision was a great miscarriage of justice. Here's the thing. Because we couldn't do a sting operation, we just don't know for sure if Valley's fantasies would have graduated as the others did. If Valley would have actually gone through with the kidnapping, with rape, torture, murder, cannibalism. His wife Kathleen believed there was a reasonable chance that he would. After she fled their home and he asked her to come back, she texted him. I think part of you wants me back, but the other part of you wants to kill me. I don't know which Gil is real. I'm afraid. I don't know you at all. From CAFE, this is Doing Justice, produced in collaboration with Transmitter Media. This episode was written and produced by Shoshi Shmulovitz. This podcast is based on my best-selling book, Doing Justice, a prosecutor's thoughts on crime, punishment, and the rule of law which you can find at doingjusticebook.com and wherever books are sold. We had production help from Ariana Lee. Sarah Nix is our editor, and our executive producer is Greta Cohn. The executive producer at Cafe Studios is Tamara Sepper, and the chief business officer is Jeff Eisenman. The reenactments of Kathleen Mangan's testimony were voiced by Erin Nicole Lundquist. Meryl Aguish fact-checked this episode, and Hannes Brown composed our original music and was our mix engineer for this series. I'm Preet Bharara. Next time, what do you do when you suspect a very important person of committing a very big financial crime? Obviously, you don't want to wrongly arrest somebody. You also don't want to uh, hesitate and let a scam artists get on the plane and leave you know, with all his ill-gotten goods. It's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. For a behind-the-scenes look at each episode of Doing Justice, become a member of Cafe Insider and catch me in conversation with journalist Biana Galodriga. You can do so at cafe.com slash insider.